Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. British boxers. They're called British boxers, you know, because of the boxers who do a fight. But they also happen... Two do boxers that fit your ass and feel comfy and tight. Plus they make tees and hoodies and stuff and a wide range of things to wear at night. And all of their clothes are super lovely, ethically made, done just right. Check out British Boxers at British-Boxers.com, which is the address of their website. And then remember, Bro 15 for 15% off, because that's a code you should cite. Yeah, I rhyme sight with sight, but my rhyming abilities are rather shite. Don't judge British Boxers by my rubbish tunes. If anything, you should check them out, despite... Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that believes in increasing face-to-face appointments for absolutely everyone, but only because that's what I call kissing. I'm Tina Duyeb and this week as Justice Secretary and what if constipation had a face, Dominic Raab says that there will be no gifting terrorists or others who want to paralyse our democracy. I ask, can I still send them Christmas cards though or is that out too? And isn't our democracy paralysed already, which is why the government keep insisting it's fit for work? Look, uh, before we get to the very grim news of the past week, which we will... Let's just, for one small minute, enjoy our lives by starting this show, um, not with the major news stories, but with former health secretary and stupid cycle helmet Matt Hancock. I know that nothing that's ever started with Matt Hancock has ever ended well, but last week he announced that he'd been given a role in the United Nations helping Africa's economy recover from COVID. Of course, we were all concerned that several countries on the continent would suddenly find themselves bankrupt after they spent billions paying for financial advice from the man at Matt Hancock's local pub who once won 20 quid on the fruit machines but was qualified for this job as he got a Lynx Africa box set last Christmas. Before the week was over, though, Africa was saved, as the UN announced Matt Hancock's appointment was not being taken forward, much like everything Hancock has ever involved in. He says, of course, that it's to do with a rule that came to light, saying that he can't do the UN job while also serving his constituency of West Suffolk. But that's really taking liberties with the term serving, unless everyone in West Suffolk had been campaigning for some time for chunks of their population to die off from Covid and have their tax money spent on an app that doesn't work. It's far more likely that the UN decided to Google Matt Hancock's endeavours and realised it was safer to not let him work in a job providing aid when he's likely to end up fucking it on CCTV instead. 
So, just enjoy that. Just for a brief second. <laughs> Matt Hancock lost his job before he got it. <laughs> uh, right, now stop that. And on to the awful shit of last week. Conservative MP David Amos was brutally murdered in his constituency office in Leon C last Friday in a really upsetting and tragic attack. Um, you don't need me to say it because it is pretty obvious, but I will anyway as it's my podcast. No one, regardless of their politics, should die in that way. And only five years after Joe Cox's murder, it's a very bleak indictment of our society that it's happened again in the very place where MPs are meant to be able to be accessible to the public. Oh, a bit much for a comedy podcast, right? So just quickly, back to... Matt Hancock lost his UN job, though, right? <laughs> oh, God. So, look, as is tradition for whenever there's a horrible event, such as political violence in Britain, rather than contemplate, grieve, or do any of the things that a society might need to in order to move on from such an incident in maybe a learning and positive way, instead, as you know, we all have to point the finger, find out who's to blame, and then spend the next few years calling them names until it happens again. It's right up there with Morris dancing a Guy Fawkes night in the list of stuff we know is outdated, but we love to gather round to do all together as some sort of national bonding. Obviously, uh, the person who is under suspicion of murdering David Amos is going to be to blame. And thanks to the news telling us only what we need to know, within hours it was revealed that he was of African appearance. Well, thanks news, only the most important details there. What does that mean of African appearance when Africa is the world's second largest continent and so diverse across its 54 countries? Was it that he looked a lot like the continent itself with, say, one pointed leg and a large torso that bulges on its left side with no discernible head? If so, was that why he was caught so quickly? The headlines then changed to let us know actually he was a British national, but of Somalian heritage, because Ov's heritage and ancestry is equally important when you're accused of committing a murder, in case you come from, say, Britain, and that way everyone knows it's not a crime but the beginning of an occupation. It has since been revealed that the man in question was referred to the counter-terrorist scheme Prevent some years ago, which many of the government and police schemes about being proactive in curbing something from happening, it's very little about steps to stop awful things, and more to whack up societal division with some big logos and catchphrases to make public transport even more exhausting than it already is. I mean, why would someone make carpets that seem designed to look like how your eyes might go if your brain started shutting down? So yes, uh, David Amos's very, very upsetting murder is being classed as terrorism. And isn't it nice to know that things are chugging right back to how they were before the pandemic? We have been living in a culture of political violence for quite some time now, though, as Dominic Raab pointed out in a BBC Breakfast interview. Over the last 11 years, we've seen the trickle effect from the growing online abuse trip into other things of a more dangerous nature. 11 years? Oh, that is funny. Just what's happened in politics... In that time, I really can't put my finger on it. In the light of Friday, many MPs have revealed again just how much abuse they get, with even Raab saying that he's had three threats to life and limb, though I do wonder if the latter is him getting confused about people campaigning for him to drop some of his policy extremities. Obviously, MPs feeling like they can't do their job safely is largely just down to that one-time deputy Labour leader and expression of a disgruntled superintendent in a police drama, Angela Rayner, calling the Tories scum. And if only she hadn't done that, then everyone on the planet who's currently dead would now definitely be alive. It is okay to specifically point Angela Rayner out and vilify her because that's not the same as doing it to anyone on the right wing. You have to remember that we expect horrible comments from the Conservatives that show they have complete disregard for other people. But when anyone else says it, uh, it is worse and carries more impact because, you know, we just expected more from them than actually calling things out. We must be clear that it was definitely that one time that Rayner said that and not any of the other times that people with opposing ideology were called traitors, a threat to people's safety, vampires that need to be killed or terrorists. Those were all fine and justified on account of their ideas being truly dangerous and having them implemented might have meant some truly awful outcomes like having enough food this Christmas which just isn't worth thinking about. 
So, how to tackle this? Well, a first step, according to the Home Secretary and personified cold spot Pretty Patel, is to ban people having anonymous accounts online because by not revealing your true name on social media, that gives you the power to reach through the computer screen to whoever's reading your unthought-through vomit of grammatical mistakes and pull out all their organs with a pixelated death arm. No, sorry, that was a Cronenberg extreme I had the other night. Ignore me, as you were. But no, really, because of a murder that, as far as we currently know, has absolutely zero to do with any online activity, you should really publish all your full details and credit card number, including the three-digit code on the back, as your username, or for all we know, you're a wrong'un. Then, of course, by not being anonymous, when politicians and media figures cause a pile-on because they've misread something you've written and want to end your career, it'll be much easier for that to drip into real life and ruin everything you've got going for you all at once, which is much safer for everyone. Ah, well, it's going to really show Patel up when it turns out all of her supporters are actually called Steve Flag 37879090903. At the tributes to David Amos in Parliament, Orc grunt Mark Francois said that the MP for Southend was horrified by toxic online misogyny, which is different to the sort that Francois does in real life, like when signalling to the former Prime Minister that he'd cut her throat, and also definitely not that case that we don't know he has anything to do with. It's clear that MPs also need to be safer when holding their constituency surgeries, so the Home Secretary is considering offering police protection for them too. Which, given other recent events, I suppose that might work, as if there's already someone dangerous there with them, it might make others not want to tread on their turf. I only hope that Patel also allocates a bus to wave down for every MP so that they can feel safe from the police officer as well. As many MPs have also been saying this week, it is important that we now have a kinder, gentler politics, just not like the type previously touted by former Labour leader and schnauzer Jeremy Corbyn. No, because that wasn't a vote winner, that was stupid, and it was a mockery of politics, or something if I remember correctly, and that was why newspapers called him a vampire and said he should be killed, which as we know, was perfectly acceptable. No, this time it's the sort of actually kind politics that only the Conservatives know how to push through, such as, for example, Pretty Patel's current plans to give immunity from conviction to border staff if a refugee dies when they push back their dinghies into the channel. Nothing says kind of politics to me, like making sure you can kill kids without any consequence, though I'm sure the Border Patrol will all be using their actual names on Twitter so it probably balances out. It's such a grotesque and fascistic motion that Patel will no doubt use it to its fullest, and that means that the only vague glimpse of hope we have is that karma dictate the thousands of drowned bodies will cause sea levels to rise quicker, wiping out all the racist East Coast towns Patel panders to in one fell swoop. You would, of course, actually hope that such a policy doesn't go through to begin with, but also as part of being kind, Dominic Raab is hoping to push through what he calls a mechanism to introduce ad hoc legislation to correct court decisions the government doesn't agree with. It would, of course, be a lot easier and time-saving for the government to not be consistently unlawful, but I guess that might require having an ounce of decency, and it would be a lot kinder of the courts if they just didn't follow the law when it came to cases the government would like to win. Rob is also yet again talking about revamping the Human Rights Act because the problem with it seems to be that it gives people human rights. If no one had any rights to go anywhere, do anything or eat, then chances are higher that politicians would be safe because everyone else would be too malnourished and cold to be violent. The Department of Health are also leaping on the kindness bandwagon by announcing that GPs can take all the in-person appointments that MPs no longer feel safe doing. Health Secretary Sajid Cyanide and Crappiness Javid announced a £250 million winter access fund to improve GP services, but only if they increase face-to-face appointments, which will of course make it tricky for patients who have any problems with anything below their neck. Javid plans to publish league tables of family doctors and deny funding to those who aren't doing as well, because as we know, the best way to help out a struggling health service is to take even more money away from it and see if they can heal patients using all the things they find in the woods. 
There are growing levels of abuse aimed at GPs, while numbers of GPs continue to fall, and so what better way of fixing both of those at once than some sort of weird competitive element that means only those who are really struggling will get people being really detrimental to them. Maybe the plan is to have them all take part until only one super doctor is left who will get to then be a GP for everyone across Britain, seeing each citizen in the country for exactly 0.007th of a minute. Look, everyone's seen Squid Game now and the government are very aware that it makes sense to follow what the public clearly want and reenact parts of it where possible. Maybe the hope from MPs is that by directing hate at GPs, people will get confused and abuse doctors instead of them. Before long, everyone will be blaming doctors for years of NHS underfunding and the mismanagement of the pandemic and then... Ah, oh, no, wait, sorry, this is meant to be topical, isn't it? Not cover things that happened ages ago. Sajid Javid cancelled his appearance at the Royal College of GPs annual conference last minute because it's clearly not safe for him to make face-to-face appointments, especially to a room full of doctors who would have had adequate time to diagnose him as suffering from massive bullshit. Remember the former health secretary, though? He lost the job he hadn't got yet, so <laughs> there we go. It's all alright, isn't it? It's all alright. The Lessons Learned to Date report about COVID was published last week and said the government's response to COVID was one of the UK's worst ever health failures ever, ever. So it's just impressive that the government keeps smashing records, isn't it? The report blames evidence of British exceptionalism, which I think isn't fair because surely it's the fault of the virus for having not recognised that Britain was too great to bother with. Maybe if it had just read a guide or seen a picture of that woman with the lions and the flag or that picture of the England fan with a firework up his bum, it would have turned around and left. It says that the death toll was higher than it should have been and the crisis exposed major deficiencies in the machinery of government. Well, I mean, if it is a machine, then I think it's long past repair and should probably just be replaced with a newer model. Cabinet Minister and wall chart of different shades of off-white Stephen Barclay refused to apologise to the families of Covid victims after the report came out, saying that the government took decisions to move quickly. Was speed the most important factor then, Stephen? What are you, eight years old? I guess if only the government could have jumped the highest or scored a hat-trick past the jumper goalposts, then it had been even better. Covid infections are currently one in 60 people with 49,000 new cases today, so don't you go saying our productivity rate is bad. One test lab in Wolverhampton has been suspended after wrongly telling around 43,000 people that they were negative, though to be fair, after hearing they've had the wrong results, they probably are now. The Home Secretary, though, insists that none of that's a problem because those with COVID are not as sick now as they were. And that is good news. And maybe all those that die from it are not as dead either. But Matt Hancock, eh? <laughs> Matt Hancock, he's lost his job and he didn't even have it. The EU have announced that most Northern Ireland checks on British goods are to be scrapped, and I really hope the ones they haven't scrapped are on any snacks gully erosion in a suit David Frost tries to carry over when he visits. <laughs> Who am I kidding? He won't visit. I'm pretty sure he doesn't even know where Northern Ireland is. Despite these proposals, Frost has warned that there's a big gap between the EU and the UK. Yes, mate, it's called the Channel, you idiot. Tweets from former adviser to the Prime Minister in annoying orange looks unwell, Dominic Cummings, said that the UK's government plan was always to ditch the Northern Ireland Protocol as soon as they could, which the Irish government has said that if that's true, shows that they can't be trusted. Hang on a minute, when did they ever show they could be trusted? The fact is, it's now clear the British government is so lazy, they just couldn't be bothered to come up with a new slogan for the next election and were keen to keep the one that worked last time of Get Brexit Done. Cummings insists that the Prime Minister and what if a laundry basket fucked a warthog, Boris Johnson, never understood what leaving the customs union meant in the first place, which is entirely believable. I'm certain, actually, that he thought leaving the customs union meant that he wouldn't have to say nice things about other countries' traditions and could be racist about them again. Speaking of the Prime Minister, unfortunately, he's been absent from all of this, only flying back from holiday to lead tributes to his colleague about how David Amos was one of the nicest, kindest and most gentle individuals to grace the benches, which is a very lovely tribute, but also makes you wonder why he was in the Conservative Party or in Westminster at all. He must have really stuck out. 
Until he flew back to deliver that speech, the Prime Minister was mainly photoed painting at his £25,000 a night villa that he was staying in, owned by eroded Gumby, Zach Goldsmith, because hey, you don't just get a peerage for being racist and failing to win elections, you know. Whether or not Johnson was actually painting, or if it was just a photo op, has been disputed, but I'd say he never actually misses a chance to stain the landscape or gloss over reality. It's been revealed that his wife and basis for the film Penelope, Carrie Johnson, broke lockdown rules last Christmas by having a friend stay with them, which would only have been allowed if the friend was there to do childcare, and that can't have been the case, as one person wouldn't have been enough to both help out with Wilfred and Johnson. The rules at the time were that no one was allowed to mix indoors, but to be fair, the very thought of being with the Johnsons at Christmas means you need a ton of cocktails just to survive it. Shoppers have been told to plan ahead for Christmas due to supply chain issues, which is worrying as I didn't realise Santa was travelling by lorry or cargo ship this year. The Johnsons have already planned ahead for December the 25th, though, as by having another baby on the way, that means they can have two friends over the inevitable lockdown. The government have made Britain's strictest head teacher and woman with the constant expression of someone who's just stepped on a rake, Catherine Burble Singh, the new social mobility chief. She's known for disliking woke culture, which is handy for the kids at her school, who hopefully get to sleep through all her crap. Recent comments of hers include thinking the idea the state should look after your child's schooling is ridiculous and that all parents should be teaching their children from the day they are born until they're 16. It's very clear that Burble Singh doesn't have kids, otherwise she'd know that they really aren't great at listening on day one and you try getting them to do homework when all they want is feeding and pooing themselves. The only social mobility I think Burble Singh is going to help with is making sure people go out of their way to avoid her at all cost. The government is preparing to publish its net zero strategy, which based on how they do everything, will involve just pretending carbon emissions aren't there anymore and carrying on as usual. The House of Lords have made 14 amendments to the Environment Bill, which now returns to the Commons, and these include better protections for ancient woodlands, but I'm sure the Conservatives will reverse that immediately on account of always ruining possibility of historical growth. Prince William, aka the character default in a game before you've given them any interesting features, has spoken out against billionaires and their rocket missions because he thinks the only time rich people should experience a lack of atmosphere is at his family get-togethers. William says Earth should come before space, and I suppose it will, especially as it's going to get fucked first. Research by the University of York says that austerity contributed to over 50,000 deaths in five years. My worry is that the government will see those figures and think, ah, well, it's safer than Covid, and then bring it back in. In honour of David Amos, Southend-on-Sea has been awarded city status, though judging by how politics in England works, that means they're remembering him by making sure it'll get taken over by a Labour MP. Ha! A joke, it's in Essex, that won't ever happen. Matt Hancock though, eh? It does feel like it's proper karma after his stint destroying the NHS's health secretary that he's now also having appointments cancelled within four days of getting them. (laughs) He lost the job he didn't even get. Hey, Parpol Brods, how's you? Really? Oh, I'd get that scene too if I was you, but I do think bulging green eyes suits you, if that helps. Oh, it's weeks like this one where I do wonder if doing a comedy politics podcast is the worst possible thing I could be doing. So I hope that intro was the right tone. Was it the right tone? I'm going for a Tony Danza over, say, Blair, obviously. Um, If it isn't, don't forget to let me know by writing a letter in ink with a quill and then throwing it at a pigeon. Don't throw it at a pigeon. Leave pigeons alone. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just hard, isn't it? Hard, hard to talk about something that clearly did leave me all a bit just horrified uh, when it happened. Um, just miserable, miserable. Um, 
Apart from avoiding the news this week, I've mainly been trying to answer the endless weird questions thrown at me by my daughter on a sort of more cheery note. Yesterday's included, what happens if you poo on a goose's necklace? I mean, where do you even begin with that one? Do geese wear necklaces? Is this a weird cockney slang phrase for something else? Why would you poo there when you're potty trained? Is what I need to ask her. I did. I was too baffled. Um, then she asked what would happen if you pooed on a duckling's wing, which feels like the sort of thing the RSPB would really clamp down on you for. And then, while she was reclining on the sofa as my wife was trying to clip um, her insanely sharp nails while she flaps her arm about honestly clipping nails on children is like the hardest job they just won't keep still and then they complain that you've like clipped their fingers off therefore anyway my daughter suddenly said what would happen if you took a small picture of the police what is that i mean is she working out the legality of keeping tabs on officers how is she in tune that that needs to happen i haven't let her listen to this show so i'm guessing poor patrol has got real dark another highlight was what happens if you don't have a mouth and it took a lot of willpower to not say then you wouldn't ask me 400 weird questions a minute it is amazing watching her be absolutely inquisitive about everything and then you look online and no one wants to ask any questions about anything at all where does when does that leave us uh you know in adulthood there's a question for you yeah i'm quite tired after asking that so maybe that's it it's just less effort to go along with shit isn't it a big thanks to Taz who moved his uh, monthly donations over from Kofi to the Patreon as part of my mega plan to have you all in one place and ultimately give me less money as the pound collapses against the dollar. It's always nice to make things harder for yourself, isn't it? If you'd like to contribute towards the making of this here relentless challenge of how on earth do I write gags when that sort of stuff has happened, then please do donate even £1 a month to the patreon.com forward slash bro, and it all goes to justify me continuing this nonsense uh, instead of yelling into a bin. Uh, it's episode 250 of this show in but a few weeks. I don't know if I'll be doing anything special for that, but it will mean that I'll have done, um, hang on, absolute fuck ton of writing that all expired within a week of it coming out. What have you done with your life, eh? Oh, something more substantial that still has value to it. Okay, touche to you. Yeesh. Um, I've also got to let you know uh, this week that uh, the interview on the podcast is a good one. It's a really good one, but the sound is not a good one. Um, and that is entirely the fault of my internet. Uh, I mean, it's not my internet. I don't own it. Um, but the internet that we get here and the best, uh, I did the best I could do to fix it. But much like the government, when they do the best they could do, I think I probably made it worse. Anyway, look, I, I'm just giving you a warning because I still think it's very listenable. But I would say that because I want you to listen to it. Um, perhaps pretend that we chatted underwater or something like that. And then you'll think it's not as bad as it could be. Um, it's not all bad either at all it's just a little bit to it um, other thing which is not at all this podcast based I've done a series of how to do stand up videos for kids in line with CBBC's Scream Street show um, they are coming out in the next few days and I'll be shamelessly posting them absolutely everywhere and they are fun and have nothing to do with politics if you have kids get them to give them a watch or just watch them yourself or just hit play and leave the room and I won't know otherwise but I will appreciate it Right, on this week's show, I chat to Dr. Helen Salisbury, who is part of Independent Sage, about the fact that COVID is still very much here, and also about how Sajid Javid hates GPs. Plus, there's a little bit in the middle about net zero. No, that isn't about having no nets. No, sports will be safe. Calm down, you'll still be able to catch butterflies, though I'm really not sure you should. A very regularly uttered soundbite by politicians over the past 19 months has been that we have to learn to live with COVID. Yes, people who've died from it, why wouldn't you just learn to let the virus flat share with you instead? Selfish. With UK daily infection rates currently in the 40,000s, it seems the government's idea of living with it is largely to ignore it, which says quite a lot about how they see their family. I wonder if they've been spending a lot of office hours trying to see which school they could send COVID to so they wouldn't have to engage with it for two thirds of the year. Sadly, while social media is always keen to point the spotlight at and amplify any dangerous parasites until they go viral, when it comes to dangerous viruses, the UK has largely decided it's best to pretend it's not there and hopefully it will get bored and go away. 
which it definitely isn't doing, as infection rates are now five times higher than any country in Europe. Yeah, take that, Europe. Seems we can trade within our own country just fine. Uh... The Parliamentary Health and Care Committee released their Lessons Learned to Date report this week, which stated that the government's initial response to COVID was one of the country's worst public health failures ever. To think that they put all that time into a 151-page document when I could have told them that over the phone in a heartbeat. However, the report also says the vaccine rollout has basically made it all okay now, so it should be fine, except for the 800 people who are dying a week, and the fact the rest of the world is likely going to erect a wall around us and daub a red cross on it any day now. Luckily, GPs are being ordered to do more face-to-face appointments with patients, meaning if you've got COVID, they'll be able to say for definite when they too catch it off you and have to cause even more of a waiting list backlog as they self-isolate. That's if any are still doing the job after Health Secretary Sajid Javid has decided the best way to make being family doctor an attractive job prospect is by bullying them, because rather than follow the classic advice of dealing with a bully by walking away, he's only ever dealt with them by working for them, and assumes everyone else should do the same. So, with the health service under even more pressure and COVID rates rising, are we looking at a return to lockdowns and a continuation of the never-ending viral cycle? Or does ignoring it and making it go away actually work? And if so, why haven't we tried that on the government yet? This week, I spoke to Dr Helen Salisbury, who is part of the Independent Sage Advisory Group. Helen is a GP, as well as someone who teaches medical students and junior doctors in communication skills in the Oxford area. She also regularly writes for the British Medical Journal and now, through Independent Sage, is part of the Independent Sage Group, who work to provide independent scientific advice to the UK government on how to recover from the Covid crisis. Helen kindly took time out of her very busy schedule of doing actually important work to let me ask her all about the lessons to date report, the treatment of GPs by the Department of Health and just what the future might hold. It's Covid, by the way. It probably holds Covid. Now, uh, before we go to the chat. Excuses, excuses. Yeah, I've had to wheel that jingle out again. Sadly, through absolutely no fault of anyone's but my own, the sound goes a little bit funny at times during this and Helen's voice has an echo to it in places. I think it's an echo. It's a sort of like juddery sort of noise that comes after sentences. I've put it through every possible programme, but I think it was my internet being rubbish and there is not a lot that I can do. I'm not like in charge of the Matrix. I can't deal with it. Um, I still think it's very highly listenable, not least because Helen was fascinating to chat to. But if you do have a complaint, then please do write into whoever is in charge of the internet and tell them never, ever to do it again. Right, I hope you enjoy. Here is Helen. Hi, Helen. Thank you for joining me. I know you're you're very busy, uh, and I'm very grateful that you've got time this week. Um, I think I've got lots of things I want to ask you, but let's start with the coronavirus uh, lessons uh, learned to date report, which I think anyone um, anyone that's been around for the last couple of years uh, was sort of fairly aware that it was the worst public health failure ever. But now it's been said officially uh, by the Health and Care Social Committee. Um, do you think the report was was accurate in its criticism or do you think that it missed uh, a lot of stuff? I think it said quite a lot of the right things, but it maybe didn't say them as strongly as some of us feel. Um, What was apparent really very early on uh, was that we weren't learning from other people uh, and we were failing and we're still failing that. That's that's still something that's going on. Um, We could see what was happening. We saw what happened in China. We could see it happening in Iran. Then it came to Italy, really, really on our doorstep. Um, And yet we still did nothing and this kind of bizarre English exceptionalism that somehow, you know, because we're British, the virus won't come here. I mean, it it was completely impossible to understand. Um, And that kind of, we're different from the rest of the world, that persists and is really, really dangerous. And this kind of idea that somehow we know better or we have better defences, which is completely 
clearly not true because we're doing so much worse than everywhere else. So there's that bit that is there but needs to be stronger. I think the other thing that is really important about the report is about transparency. We didn't know what was going on. And the government kept saying they were following the science as if there was a scientific consensus. But we have no idea what that was because they wouldn't even um, publish the membership of their SAGE group, um, let alone the advice they'd been receiving. Or, um, and clearly some of it was, was rubbish, this kind of early idea that we needed just to control the rate of infection so we had a steady stream so that the health service wouldn't fall over. I mean, that was never going to be a good idea. And looking at what was happening in hospitals around the world, you could see that is a really, really bad idea. We need to you know, reduce the amount of this as quickly as possible. There's all sorts of ways we could have done that by, for example, doing community testing, lots of it early on, as soon as we could, locking down much earlier, and, um, and by having an effective test and trace system built on, um, on existing health services. Instead, they, they did all sorts of weird stuff, throwing money to their, to their mates um, to set up stuff that didn't work. Um, some of it comes out of the report, but I think there's a lot, a lot missing, really. And it's kind of not surprising considering who wrote the report. <laughs> yes, I did wonder if that was uh, if that would be part of it. Uh, Jeremy Hunt was a, was a key player, and it, which is one of the things I was going to say that I've sort of read quite a lot of people complain that this report doesn't state that you know how the last ten years of austerity have affected the pandemic response and the, the you know the state that the NHS was in when we, when it had to tackle this. Absolutely. And how this, the last 10 years of austerity and of underfunding of the health service particularly has left some communities particularly really, really badly off. Um, and the combination of austerity as a blanket thing and specifically things like cuts in public health service and cuts in the NHS were in no to to respond nevertheless we could have responded a huge amount better than we did um and it's really quite difficult to unpick why such bad decisions were made um partly because there's no transparency so we don't know why those bad decisions were made you know because from the outside they look you know why would you ever do something like that um particularly decisions about test and trace decisions about not testing in the community um decisions about discharging everyone to their care homes, carrying COVID, all these sorts of things. You think, well, that was clearly bonkers. Why do they do it? Um, I think we still don't really know. It's so it's so strange. And another thing you sort of mentioned earlier, the English exceptions, which which absolutely baffled me that we're we're somehow mm. immune to a virus that would recognise, oh, I won't touch the I won't touch the English. Uh, but there was also the kind of business that, you know, we, we had the the borders were open to business travel and and all sorts of things were were allowed to happen as though the virus would think, Oh, they've got too much money to, for me to bother them. <laughs> and it's very clear, you know, that the idea we want to protect business, that the countries that did well from coronavirus and had not many deaths also had did best economically because it kind of stands to reason if lots of your workers are sick and everyone's scared the economy doesn't thrive and the other thing that i quite like to just highlight is there's people saying oh yes well with hindsight we can see it's not about hindsight there's a a really very brilliant clip from rory stewart who is a conservative and i'm not a great fan in all sorts of ways but from really early on, before long before the lockdown, him saying, 
we are going to be closing schools. We will have to lock down. This is dangerous. We've got to get on. We've got to do it now. Um, and that was weeks before anything actually happened um, in this country. So there were plenty of people who had foresight. It's not about hindsight. It's about having foresight and also being brave enough to take decisions to do the things you need to do. And, and that was completely lacking. I think we get some flavour from other sources of the chaos that was going on in government at the time. You know, they were busy celebrating their bonkers Brexit and you know, they didn't want to engage. It, just, it was just not a convenient time to have a pandemic. So it was not happening. Massive <laughs> denial going on. Yes, it's very selfish of, of COVID to hit at that time, wasn't it? It could have just waited six more months and maybe they'd have, they've responded better. I mean, it, one of the things the report says is, uh, you know, that the, the, the vaccine, the vaccination rollout kind of countered the terrible uh, initial response. And um, obviously, you know, the, the vaccine rollout was, was, was brilliant and I'm very pleased that it happened. But is that, I mean, was it enough to counter the fact that, that you know, uh, it, it was such a bad response? I think our death rate proves the opposite, really. I mean, nothing, you know, a brilliant vaccine campaign does not bring those people back to life. Yeah? And that's a serious bit. No, it doesn't. Um, it was great that we developed vaccines. And we also imported vaccines. And there's a kind of slightly irritating thing that Boris kept saying, if this is the, the success of private industry, well, it wasn't. It was all publicly funded work. Um, and... The vaccine rollout was was brilliant and I was part of it and I really enjoyed it. And 75% of vaccines were delivered through GP surgeries. And you don't hear that. You don't hear that that's actually, that's who rolled out the vaccine. And we were doing brilliantly until bizarrely, and again, it's English exceptionalism, we didn't do what the rest of the world is. The rest of the world took the summer break to vaccinate teenagers so that they could get ahead of the autumn term and what would happen when schools got back together. Uh, we didn't do that. And, and again, we have a bit of a problem that the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation hasn't been publishing its minutes. It's meant to. It's in its terms of reference, but it's not been published. So we don't know why they decided that, there was, that it was so very finely balanced about whether children should be vaccinated. And then we didn't start till September. And we're still going really, really, really slowly on vaccinating teenagers. And I think it was 8% of teenagers had COVID last week. That's an awful, and that was avoidable. So it's still, we're doing something different from the rest of the world, and there's no good reason that we can see. Well, there may be a good reason, but it doesn't seem to be working out well for our teenagers, and it's not working out for the rest of the country, and we're still having 800 deaths a week. And can we at least see the workings? Sorry, I'm getting quite angry, but I am no, no, quite no, no, angry no. about it. I'm, I'm absolutely shocked they don't even publish their minutes. I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm very shocked at the, the death and everything, but I couldn't believe, you know, surely they do they not legally have to, or is there no? Uh... It's in their it, it's in their terms of reference. They're meant to, but they haven't. They're not since February. That's really horrific. Wow. I mean, and, and this is what I wanted to ask, really, is, you know, you're you're a GP, and and obviously you're, you're now working with Independent Sage. You know, where how are you? confident about the next few months i mean we've got is it nearly 70 percent of the population is fully vaccinated um but it does really feel uh like a lot of people have just stopped thinking that it's happening or you know I, i've been on the on the tube a lot in london and a lot of people aren't wearing masks anymore um 
are we are we going to see you know do you think we might see a big an even bigger rise again are we going to have to head into lockdowns again what's your what's your sort of gut feeling about it i mean there's two parts of that there's one is that we are at the moment in a really bad way and somehow it's been kind of normalized you know 800 people dying a week one in five of our itu beds filled with someone with covid so we can't do any of the other stuff we would normally do and if you have COVID, you stay in an ITU bed for weeks. And that's an awful lot of planned urgent heart operations that don't happen because there's somebody with COVID in that bed. Uh, I don't begrudge the person with COVID that bed, they need it. But it just means the system doesn't work. Uh, we've got lots of deaths. We've got lots of sick people. We're building up masses of long COVID for the future. I mean, what percentage, who knows, because it's really difficult to find. But it clearly is a thing. And there's lots of people ill with it. Um, so it's a real problem and that somehow we've been gaslighted into thinking, well, it's okay, it's the new normal. Hey, lots of people, that, well, it's not the new normal the rest of Europe. They've avoided it. They're on about a tenth of our rate of COVID infections at the moment. And not nearly as many people are dying. So we're doing something very wrong. And it's brilliant we've got so many people vaccinated, but it's absolutely clear as well that vaccines don't do all the work. Yeah, there are some people who are not vaccinated. There's some people who, even though they are vaccinated, can't respond to it because of their immune system doesn't work properly or they're on certain medications. And the vaccines also do wane. Yeah, they, 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 they're not forever. They're, they're great, but they're not 100 percent and they do get weaker over time. Uh, and I'm just really worried about half term that there's going to be lots of kids if we've got, you know, um, 8% of kids with COVID visiting granny and grandpa over the weekend who had their last jab back in you know, eight February. I'm worried we're going to have another resurgence. Um, and the kind of rhetoric that it's, we're all free, it's about personal responsibility. You can wear a mask if you like, but if you feel insecure, you can wear a mask. It, it's not about, you know, me wearing a mask is not because I feel insecure. Me wearing a mask is because I feel responsible to others. And I might, I might be carrying it and not know it. And I might give it to someone else and they might not be protected. So I ought to wear a mask. But that message, that message of collective responsibility and caring for each other, that's completely absent from the, the rhetoric. What we got is it's over. We're in the post-pandemic world. Well, sadly... I'd love it if we were, but we're not. It's really, I, I find it very scary at the moment. It's, it's, uh, I mean, but, but there's this whole attitude, um, you know, and, and it's what I want to come to with you being a GP. We've got this whole attitude that everything is people's personal responsibility. There's no responsibility from the government and that they're ignoring it. It's all up to us now, whether we want to do it or not. And, and there seems to also be this, uh, attitudes we mentioned earlier that, that GPs are sort of, it's their fault for the waiting queues and it's their fault that things aren't happening quick enough. And, and I mean, how you must feel very sort of vilified about I don't know, what's morale like amongst GPs at the moment, especially after the last week of of Sajid Javid's proposals for league tables, which it sounds really, really just horrible. I'm trying to think of a better word for it than that, but it just sounds bullying, really. I, I think it really is. And, you know, if you have some practices that are really struggling, and I know some of my colleagues are really struggling because they don't have enough staff um, and and. It's really hard. And what you need to do is say, oh, who's not performing very well? We'd better give them some more support. Mm. They obviously need some help to do this better if they're not managing. 
And, you know, there may be, I don't know, there may be some people around the world somewhere around the country who are not working 12-hour days, uh, but I haven't met many of them. And I've just been at a conference with lots of GPs, and, you know, most of them are putting in 12 hours a day at work. Most of them can't manage more than, like, four days of that because you 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 can't do five days of 12 hour days because you, you, your brain explodes um and we are trying to juggle the instructions we had last year which in fact even before the pandemic which we should be going all online it should all the e-consult we should do lots of remote consulting because that was matt hancock's favorite thing was being techie and remote and all this we didn't really like it but we go yeah we'll do some of that and now we've got new one. Oh no 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 you've got to do everything face to face despite the fact that actually it's not really safe to have lots of people in our waiting room because they'll catch COVID from each other because there's still lots of it about. Um, we get nonsensical staff, but also there's so many attacks on GPs who are trying their very best to do what is safe and best for their patients. Uh, and for some reason, the Daily Mail and various others have taken it into their heads that we're the villains. Um, uh, and technically our boss the health secretary is doing really good leadership stuff so rather than backing his workers and coming and you know and speaking to he decides he'll he'll go with the daily mail yeah and and tell everyone we're rubbish basically and we ought to do something different like see all our patients face to face there's not even any evidence any evidence that patient, more patients want to see us face to face i mean we before pre-pandemic, it was uh, about 80% face-to-face. Now it's about 60%. We probably need to be somewhere in the middle. And post-pandemic, we'll probably get there. But there isn't a howl of distress, except that is reflected in the Daily Mail. At least that's what I hear from loads of people's patient surveys. You know, it's, it is slightly manufactured. And the question is, why? What have they got against GPs? What particularly has our, home sec- has our health secretary got against GPs? He was meant to come and speak to the conference. He was billed, headline bill, beginning of the first day, Sajid Javid, but he did not attend his face-to-face appointment with us. In fact, we, we offered him a video appointment too. He didn't attend that either. He's not, he's not most doctor's favourite person right now. He's got a lot of work to do. And the thing is, when, when patients don't come to an appointment, as a doctor, there's a, there's a little bit of you that thinks, phew, that's, that's, that's a bit of catch-up time I've, I've got, great. But there's also a bit of you that thinks that is a lost opportunity to make this relationship work and to do something that will help this person and to, 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 to help their health or, in Mr Javid's um, case, maybe help his understanding of his new job. But he missed it. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Helen in a minute, but first... The government's net zero strategy, net zero review, green finance roadmap and heat and building strategy will be published this week. Yes, that is all one thing. I mean, it's four papers, but they're all together. So despite it being about saving energy, they've managed to waste quite a lot of words. I mean, I'd have gone for for because it's super catchy and people would definitely pay attention when you said it. We'll know fully what's in the report when it's released, unlike the gases uh, if all goes to plan. So for now, here's the headlines we do know, or at least I know because I just googled them, and then after this bit you'll know as well. You're very welcome. The government are aiming to make a 68% cut to emissions by 2030 and then a 78% cut by 2035, as well as a total elimination of greenhouse gas emissions that year too. They haven't said how they're going to do any of that yet, any taxes, subsidies or anything else that are going to help, and there's every chance they'll just blame everyone for still breathing out when they fail to hit any of them, as we should have known better. They're going to put nuclear power at the heart of it, which I'm sure is how you create the Incredible Hulk. But the problem is all the UK's current nuclear reactors are due to be retired by 2035, which is going to really ruin their targets. I didn't know nuclear reactors retired either, but I really hope they don't plan to travel the world or get an allotment patch as it doesn't sound safe. There isn't likely to be any mention about the need to cut meat consumption, but then I suppose thanks to Brexit, it'll all have been bonfired by then anyway. And that also won't help emissions. Wow, this is really hard. The installation of new boilers is going to be banned from 2035, swapping them with grants for heat pumps, which I think still sounds like another word for farts. And there'll be some stuff about shifting energy policy costs from gas to electricity instead, as it's a cleaner energy source, which which is true. And I entirely base that on the mess I make when cooking and how much easier it is to clean electric hobs, even if they burn everything. Uh, so that's it right now. That's it. That's like the whole, that's all we know about the plan. Hopefully there will be some more in it than that. But leaked papers suggest that actually there isn't really much and it's only going to be half done. So less net zero, more um, net half of what's left, whatever that is. The big problem seems to be the Chancellor and pair of scissors cutting a toilet roll, Rishi Sunak, and the Treasury who are getting all shitty about the costs of getting to net zero, but also refusing to take into account the long-term benefits of creating green jobs or, you know, everyone not being dead. The Green Alliance reckons £22 billion is needed to fund the plan properly, but currently the Treasury is willing to give around £12 billion and they're setting up a UK infrastructure bank to replace the last one that had more funding but was sold off to Australia in 2017, five years after it was formed. Sunak is planning to impose tight spending in his next budget by getting the Treasury to use old data about the economy, says every chance he'll be basing the money for the net zero carbon on the time's pre-industrial revolution, so there's no need to spend anything on it. Hopefully, the Nizanungarifurbs won't be as bleak as it's sounding, and there'll be some good policies in there that provide us with some sort of hope that we're not just going to end up in some burning tidal wave of horror. But as we've come to expect, chances are very high. The only thing that there will be net zero of are any actual ideas that might work. And now, back to Helen. Well, I, I, yeah, I would say unbelievable. It is frighteningly believable. Uh, very believable, unfortunately. Um, it, but it is, it's interesting, one of the things you mentioned there about 
you know, because so I, I'm a type one diabetic, and I um, have been really loving the fact that my appointments haven't been face to face because I've got a. I mean, I should say I'm in a very sort of lucky position that I've got the, the a freestyle Libra where I do my check my glucose on a thing on my arm. I'm, I'm part bionic at the moment. It feels very exciting. And I've got an insulin. Brilliant. So yeah. I, I upload everything online, and then I talk to my GP or my doctor online because they can see all the readings, and it saves me the trip. And actually, it feels really wow. This is I, re- I really please. You know, obviously there might be times I will need to go in, but there, there must be. Yeah, you know, I, obviously, I know there'll be people that will struggle with online methods, but there must be something that's quite exciting. Is this is is not some of the changes that we've had things that needed to happen? Absolutely, and bizarrely, the pandemic has been an amazing catalyst to make us develop new ways of working and think what's what's necessary, what's useful. I think it's difficult to tell, say, what things because you might think you could do mental health over the phone, but actually. Most, quite a lot of people need to come to the safety of your room to sit and talk with you and make eye contact, and that's really important. Uh, but I think particularly with hospital specialties, when people might travel a really long way for a follow-up visit, if everything's going okay, you could do that by video, with my phone call, reasonably well. Um, and it, there, is, there is a bit about what the patient's comfortable with, and there's a bit about what's safe um, and you can do effectively. I think there's there's a certainly there's a there's a green thing in there as well. Do we really want people to be traveling to and fro all the time? In, yeah, in, actually, maybe we don't need to do that. So there's a lot of rethinking we can do. There are some issues. Um, I think there's some issues with immediacy and people think, well, if I can do it online, if I can get my phone, then I ought to be able to do it now. Um, Whereas if there was a kind of slightly more acceptance, if it's you're going to get travel to the surgery, then it's going to have to be the next day or the day after all, you know, some time. So I think the people's expectations have grown as well, which, which needs some sorting out. But yeah, I mean, certainly with, with the, the tech that goes into, for example, modern day diabetes control, it's great to do stuff remotely. And it's interesting, somebody, somebody was saying at the conference that um, we should ditch the word remote because it implies that we're not involved or, or distant in some psychological sense. I mean, we should maybe do long distance or telephone or video or something rather than say remote um, because it implies oh, that's interesting. That the doctor's less involved. Yeah, well, I was going to say, is, is that a, a, perhaps a downside of it? And, you know, if, you've, if you're doing more appointments online, do you have to cram in more into a day? And, and, I, and I wanted to sort of link that to obviously, you know, reading that there's a lot of GP shortages. And I can't imagine that the idea of even more things and even longer days is going to encourage more people to train and, and do the job. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is difficult. And um, there's always, you know, if people are also contact you by e-consult, is that an extra on top of everything else you've got? You know, the, it, a new work stream coming in tends to just add more work rather than replacing something. And that, that, that is an issue. But I think, you know, we just don't have enough GPs. There was a brilliant uh, paper that was published last week, which was about continuity of care and how having the same doctor over time is really good for your health. Stops you being admitted to hospital, stops you having to go to out of hour service, actually stops you dying, which is really really interesting. Um, but the the Norwegian doctors, each doctor had uh, one thousand one hundred and thirteen patients, and in the UK, each GP has over two thousand patients. Wow. So, so it's a kind of, it, it, we are out of step in terms of how many people we're trying to look after. 
uh, we're doing our best, but, but it's really difficult to keep all those balls in the air. And one of the things we've that's happened recently is that we've taken on more people into general practice, pharmacists and physios and um, associates, physicians, all sorts of people have come and, and helped us, which is great. And I think they have improved the quality of care in sometimes, but there's lots of things they can't do. And as the GP, you still end up responsible for everything and responsible for your patients. And, and is that just uh, that amount of patients that, that each GP sort of sees? Is that to do with our population or is that because of underfunding and, and a lack of funding to social care and all the other things that now come under the responsibility of, of a GP? Um, I think it's because the number of GPs we have has gone down uh, and the population has grown. Uh, and why has the number of people gone down? I think it's partly because junior doctors looking in think mm, that looks like really hard work I'm not sure I want to do that um uh and it's always been in terms of medical profession it's interesting it's it's um it's not the most prestigious thing to do uh so yeah um uh and if you if you add that to the kind of and it looks like really 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 hard work um, maybe people don't want to do it but I also think more it's about um people retiring early because they, they just can't hack it anymore. The 12-hour days are just too exhausting. The, the, the kind of cognitive load of having to make all these decisions all the time, and they're important decisions. You're changing people's medication. You're, you're deciding who to refer to where. You're trying to manage the resources. It's, 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 quite, it's quite hard work. And, and, um, and then, and then you, you know, we got a few plats last year, but now we're mostly just getting uh, abuse, in, including from the people who should be supporting us. You know, it's not surprising that people say, you know what, I'm, I'm quitting now. I'm not going to do this anymore. And it's really depressing how many um, people sort of in their mid-50s are thinking, yeah, done enough. Can't do this anymore. We need to make the job doable and enjoyable so that people want to do it because people need GPs and there's a really worrying idea that people just, you know, they're not going to be able to access this. And I know in some parts of the country, people are having huge difficulties accessing a GP at all now anyway. Do, do you sort of feel, um, you know, because I know there's been a funding announcement of 250 million or whatever, which I already can tell is nowhere near enough <laughs> what's what's needed you know the, there's a billion black hole you know it's billions isn't it the nhs has a black hole of and so it, but is it you know do you, do you sort of feel uh without i don't want to put words in your mouth but you know this all feels like a drive towards the privatization that we keep hearing about is if there's fewer gps people have to seek out healthcare elsewhere if you know is this a you know you, is that is that what you feel it's a push towards or do you feel like the kind of um vilification of gps is, is something else is it you know where, where does it come from it just seems like such a weird thing to be doing it is a weird thing to be doing isn't it i think um from my perspective i think the, the nhs and general practice in particular is a it's it is an example of left the left that really really works and it's really really popular and it's fantastic. And I think some people who are ideologically wedded to the free market and capitalism find, find the whole NHS thing really um, uncomfortable. Um, 
So I think there, there may be some strands of government who just really would like us. And we've known, you know, people have published books who then became cabinet ministers and the books say, you know, we will get rid of the NHS. And you know, there are some people who would like to do that. Not quite sure which of the current batch, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of them are in their hearts would really like to go towards a diversified system with more private interests. Um, and the, the, for me, the worry is private means that some people get the care they need and even more care than they actually need. And some people don't get the care that they desperately need. And that's where we go if we go away from our NHS. That we have. And, and, and it's already happening in the growth of the private sector. There's not very much private GP yet, but I'm sure it's growing. And the more the NHS struggles, the more you end up with a two-tier system. That, that, that really does worry me. How much it's deliberate? I don't know. And you talked about this 250 million that they're gonna, they're gonna give us. It's supposed to be to fund other doctors, to fund locum doctors, but the, the problem is, you needed to start before now because those doctors aren't there to fund. You see what I mean? You can't you can't just buy a GP off the shelf. They don't come ready made. You have to spend a long time training them, or you have to find some way of enticing back the ones that have have discovered that it's more fun to be on the allotment. Frankly, yeah, yeah. Are, are you um? You know, because uh, what was was it? Sajid Javid's advice at the conference wasn't it that people should seek help from their family. Uh, before they go to the doctor, are you are you now being bothered by your family every five minutes <laughs> that you have to solve their issues? Because that's what I, I I heard that and I thought firstly that I don't know I don't know how much of my family I trust with my uh, diabetic uh, issues, but also I then suddenly felt very sorry for the fact for for doctors whose families are going to be bothering them every five minutes and going oh well I'm lucky at least I've got a GP in my family. I get a fair amount, but it hasn't changed. Um, I think. I think he was also talking particularly about care. And I think that's um, very offensive, actually, to, I mean, nine tenths of the care in this country is provided by families. You know, I th- you know the, the, the concept that, that we should make people, and let's face it, it's mostly women, give up their work and look after their old relatives. That, that's really... I don't think that's acceptable now. And lots and lots of people do because the system doesn't work well enough for them. But to suggest that they should do it even more and we should have even less of a safety net, even less of a system, I think is... We're not on the same page, let's put it that way. (laughs) No, 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 God, God, no. I, I, I can't imagine many people... Uh, it, it's um yeah I uh I, I mean it's just like I was trying to think of a sort of nicer question to ask you at the end but that I, I feel this is perhaps quite a bleak final question but how concerned are you with everything we just discussed you know we, we've there's there's constant talk about possibilities of future pandemics of other big health crises we've got this continued negative attitude towards people like yourself who who are you know experts in in medical and towards scientists are you are you sort of worried about the future of of healthcare and and or or you are you hopeful that that I don't know just uh, technology and other things will mean that we 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 get ahead of the game. Um, uh, my pessimisms, my pessimism is partly about climate because I think that's probably the biggest thing, and with it, it will become more pandemics and more more all sorts of things. Uh, so unless we get that bit right, we are really stuck. 
Um, in terms of healthcare, healthcare, there's, there's more and more we can do. And even since I was a medical student, there's just so much we treat so much better and so many people who have longer and healthier lives. But it's really, really poorly distributed. So that inequality between um, what the, the richest experience in terms of length of life and, and, and disease-free life is so different from what the poor experience. Um, we could do it. We could do it so much better, but it is about political will. It's about where you decide to put your money and how you decide to distribute your money. Um, and none of it is a kind of given or inevitable, um, but unfortunately it's, it's what leaders you choose. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, that's terrifying. Um, good. Well, th thank you. I really appreciate you having the time to chat. And I, I, the last question I'd like to ask you, which is just something I ask all the guests uh, on this show with the hope of furthering good information, really, um, is that apart from yourself mm -hmm. and Independent Sage um, and the British Medical Journal, which I know you write for, um, which people, sites, organisations would you recommend that listeners follow or, or check out for sort of accurate medical info whether that's on covid or, or gps or otherwise uh, you know who are the people that you like to go to for for information uh that's really interesting um i have a very uh much visited tab which is just just the the stats on what's happening with covid there's a website called worldometer and it just tells you what the death rate is in different countries and what it's been like and how many people how many people have been diagnosed and actually I think that's really interesting just to keep me grounded in what is going on so I look at that uh, I do follow my indie sage um colleagues on twitter um particularly the amazing Christina Pargol who who just produces such good numbers all the time because I think that's that's very useful um I think it's quite difficult looking for other uh, reliable sources of information you know Try and ignore the ones who've got lots of numbers after their name and don't have a picture. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit of a flippant answer. Um, and and for all its faults, in looking up medical information, uh, my first port of call is usually um, the NHS website because it's written by sensible people and it's written in sensible, easy language. Um, and you'll usually get a good advice from that. Thanks so much to Helen for having time to chat in between all of her actually important work. Um, you can find Helen on Twitter at Helen R. Salisbury and the Independent Sage group can be found at independentsage.org, on Twitter at Independent Sage and on Facebook too. I'm sorry again about the sound issues when listening to that, but I don't control the internet. As I've mentioned, I've got no idea how to stop it. All tips for how to control the internet, please get in touch. I would love to control it. I'd happily... Uh, just remove a lot of it, uh, put more cat things uh, and then, you know, just be the architect of the matrix, um, mainly just to do better interviews, actually. I'd, I'd, I'd have the job. Let me know where I can apply. Who else? What else? Why else? How else do you want to hear on the show? Suggestions for guests or subjects to find guests on? Chuck them my way, but with non-thrown words to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> And that's finite for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. If you had no major objections to the words used in this week's show, such as Horatio, Gherkin or Wild Morris dancing, um, 
barely any of those were actually used. Morris Dancing was, but I just used Horatio and Gherkin now. That counts. That still counts. Then why not suggest the show to others who may be similarly nonplussed and excited about something they won't have objections to? You can even sponsor this shit happening by joining the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bro, or even, if you have the typing skills, leave a nice five-star review at Apple Podcasts or one of the other pod-dwelling sound website caves. Yeah, thanks for that to Acast, my brother-in-law skeptic, and Cat Day. This will be back next week when Matt Hancock still doesn't work for the UN. <laughs> Bye. This week's show was sponsored by the GP Super League. For just $49.99 a month, you get exclusive pay-per-view access to all of the GP Super Heats. Competitive ear syringing, time checking of just what that rush is, relay prescriptions and the big event, Super Bowl, cancer test results checking. GP Super League, get your dose now. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.